So, let's keep moving to where we're at. We're in the book of Ephesians, and um, if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about the book of Ephesians being a great book that in it, Paul is connecting this idea of what it looks like, what is a Christian, and what it looks like to be a Christian. Um, what it looks like to, to be a Christian even, and live out that Christian life. Um, Paul is trying to say what, he'll, what he will get at in chapter 4, thus the title of our series, Walking as Called. We're trying to keep those two together. And so this whole series really is about what is a Christian? What does a Christian mean? What does a Christian do? A lot of confusion around that. Perhaps you even have your own questions about what it means to be a Christian. Some of you are going, no, I've been a Christian my whole life. But let me tell you, not so fast. I want to say to you that perhaps there's questions that you haven't even thought about that you need to hear because you really have a misunderstanding perhaps in some way about what it looks like to be a Christian and to live as a Christian. So that's why we're here. We're in the book of Ephesians in verse chapter in verse 1, chapter 15. And I'm going to read, and then we'll, um, we'll go from there. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet, Jesus' feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Will you pray with me? God, thanks for um, this word to us tonight. I pray that You would open our ears, that we would hear You, Lord. Some of us come uh, with lots of questions. We don't even know why we came here tonight. Others of us, Lord, are excited to be here. And, but wherever we're at, God, we know that we're um, in need of You. So will You please show up and, and speak to us. And do that through this broken arrow. Lord, I take, pray that You would take this broken arrow and deliver a straight bow so that my, I mean, a straight blow so that my friends would hear. And ask this all in Your name, Lord. Amen. Um, if you're, a friend, if you're a, a friend, I should say, or a fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I realize that might be before some of y'all's you know, age and it might seem dorky and whatever, but I love the story. It's wonderful. And you can make fun of me because of that if you want. But uh, in this story, as you well know, there is this character 
or as you may not know, uh, there is this character, and his name is Aragorn. And Aragorn is this ranger who, he's sort of out there. He's a loner. He doesn't really have much of a story. They don't really know much about his identity. Coinciding with that, there are evil forces on the rise. And they begin to overtake the city that is without a king. And it's been without a king for years. And all that's left over this city is a steward. Not a king, but a steward. Somebody who's there to just oversee it. But that throne belongs to the king. And in the third movie, also in the third book, there is a scene where, I mean, I'm just pulling out all my dork card right now. There is an elfish character (laughs) that confronts Aragorn and whips out this big sword. And he looks at Aragorn in the face and he says, put away the ranger and become who you were born to be. Put away the ranger and become who you were born to be. Because at that moment, Aragorn knows that he is the rightful heir to that throne. And he is being charged to live out who he really is. He did not know what he had. He did not know who he was. And it had to be shown to him so that he could live out the fullness of who he really was, namely, the king of that land. Why do I tell you that story? Because I want to suggest to you that here in Paul's letter to the several churches in the town of Ephesus, that Paul is saying the exact same thing. That I want you to know, Christians in Ephesus, what you have and who you are. And I'm trying to tell you this, that when you know that, everything changes. So we've basically got two points tonight. We're going to look at First, what Paul is saying that the Christians in Ephesus, and you and me as well, what you have, and secondly, who you are. Let's look at the first thing. First of all, Paul wants them to know, and us, what they have. Look with me at verse 18. This is a prayer. Paul is praying and he is saying in verse 16 rather, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That, and here's what he's going to say, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I want God to be able to give you the ability to see and understand. And then he's going to say how that happens. Next verse, having the eyes of your heart enlightened for the purpose, look with me, that you may know. Do you see it there? That you may know. And Paul is going to say three things that I want you to know. They're right there in front of you. What is the hope to which he has called you? Secondly, 
What are the riches of His glorious inheritance? And thirdly, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power? What are the three things that they have? Hope, riches, and power. First of all, hope. When you hear the word hope, generally you think of hope as like a wish, don't you? Man, I hope TCU gets a good recruiting class today. I don't know if they did or not. Anybody figure like where they landed? 24th? Not too shabby for a school. That's great. Top 25 recruit. That's good. Anyway, I'm getting off subject. The point is, we use the word hope like a wish. I hope they get this. Or I hope that boy likes me. Or I sure hope when I ask her out that she'll say yes. Or I hope when I graduate that I have a really, really good job coming. But I want to tell you that that's not what the Bible means when it uses the word hope. That's the way Americans use it. But that's not the way the original readers and writers would have used it. When you hear the word hope, it means more of this. The word hope is this very dense and pregnant word that's just full of meaning. And it relates to the end. It relates to almost a storyline. Think with me if you will. Every single one of us lives by some story or some script. You take your cues in life. You have values and judgments that you base your life on. And what Paul is saying is is that this script over here gets shredded in the shredder when you are called unto Christ and He gives you a new hope, a new storyline, and a new future as it were. It doesn't always mean that you're going to be rich. In fact, some of you in this room might actually die for the sake of Jesus. I hope that might happen one day. Not in the sense that I want you to die. But the church is always advanced when people, when the blood has been shed of those who believe. So your hope might be to die for the Lord. We'll talk about that later on. But it's not always a a hope of ultimate blessing. I mean, sorry, of like... That's not what I meant to say. (laughs) Of blessing in the sense that everything's going to go okay with your life. What it means is that it is a hope for sort of ultimate and end blessing. Think of it like this. One of these days, whether you die for the Lord or not, you're going to die. I'm sorry to tell you that. I've just had to face that last week with my girls. The psalmist says that the Lord knows our days and He's numbered them before one of them comes to pass. And last week I just said, Lord, if my girls' days are 74, they're 74. That might be all that You give them. And they're all in the womb. And I pray that You would sustain them. But that might be all that You give them. I don't know how many days that you've got, but the Lord does. And one of these days, if you're in Christ, because of Jesus, you you are going to conquer death. You're going to rise again with Him. That death is not the end of the story for you. It's just not. And Paul is saying that that is your hope. It's a lot different than a wish. Paul is saying, I want you to know that you have that. Secondly, the immeasurable riches 
that we have. Again, it's right there. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, when you hear this word riches, this is what you need to think of. What Paul has in mind when he employs this word is this. A king, a Roman general, a, uh, a Roman emperor, a whatever it would have been, when they would have left their land and gone into a new land, they would have gone straight to the treasury. They would have gone to the Federal Reserve of the United States. And they would have absolutely ransacked it and taken everything out of it. They would have done that with every person's personal belongings, all the money and the values in a city they would have taken, and the king or the general himself would get first dibs on it. He would look around and he would say, I want that. I want that. That's mine. That's going to my nephew or whatever else. But that's mine. And then he would take the rest and disperse it amongst his uh, generals or his soldiers for their good deeds. Does that make sense? It was a payment for them laying down their life almost. Okay? And so what Paul is saying is that that's the sort of riches he's thinking about. The treasured, the treasured possession is what he's saying. It's the same language that you hear in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want to say one more thing. Think about it like this. One pastor puts it like this. How do you get Bill Gates something that he wants that he doesn't already have? I mean, if you get Bill Gates a Christmas present, what's going to make him open it up and go, Oh, yes! I didn't ever have one of those. Not much. Not much. But whatever it is, Whatever it is that would make his heart sing and dance, that's what a treasured possession is. And here's what I need to say to you. Most of you right now are thinking that's what he means. That I get those treasured possessions. And you know what? You're dead wrong. What he's saying is this. That you are the possession that you're the treasure. That you are the thing that makes God's heart sing and dance. When He looks at you, His heart wells up with pride and joy and delight because you are His riches. You are His riches. The Creator of the universe looks at you and goes, that's the apple of my eye. That's the thing that makes my heart dance. That's what Paul wants you to know that you have, if you can put it that way. That you have the Heavenly Father's gaze, His affection, His delight. It's what you have. It's not what you got to work for. It's not what you got to go out and pretend and try to get. It's what you already have. And Paul's saying, you got to know this. And this is incredible news. We're going to look at this in just a second. Why? But thirdly, he wants you to know that you have, look with me, the greatness of his power toward us who believe. What in the world does that mean? He means simply this. That all of the power
power that it took in the triune, infinite God to raise up Jesus and to put Him at the right hand of God, all of that power you already have. And that's absolutely insane. I don't know what that looks like. I'm not saying you've got like a little power cell like a Super Mario life thing or whatever. And then you just, you know, it's, it's not like that. I don't know exactly what it's getting at other than to tell you that the sort of ability, the sort of um, power that you have to live your life for Jesus is as powerful as it is to raise a dead man from the grave to life. That's what you have. The Apostle Peter puts it like this when he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. All things, you have them. Right now, if you are in Jesus. Why is this so important? Think about it like this as an illustration. Imagine you show up to your final at the end of the year and you've been busting your butt studying for your biochem exam or whatever else it is. You know it's the hardest course in your curriculum. Now imagine that when you get there, the teacher says after the exams are passed out, by the way, this test is open book. If you got it, use it. Oh, by the way, it's open notes too. If you got them, use it. Oh, wait, you know what, by the way, uh, I'm passing out the answer key. Mike, you can go ahead and use that. That is the power element, but it goes better. Then imagine the teacher said, hey, y'all, by the way, uh, you're all going to make A's on this test. I just need for you to take it, Okay. I need an exam from each of you, and the department head said that someone else could come and take your exams for you. So, guess what? The person who wrote it took the exam for you. You're getting an A. It's guaranteed. That would be the hope that Paul wants you to know that you have. And it goes one deeper. Then imagine the professor says, oh, by the way, I love, I would love it. Love, love, love it to have you come over to my house tonight for dinner and let me just shower you on you the best of meals because I really, really enjoy and delight in you. Yes, I know that you skipped my class. Yes, I know that you've cheated on my exams. Yes, I know that you've dog-cussed me on Facebook. But that doesn't matter. I want you to come to my house because I absolutely enjoy you and I want to be around you. That is the immeasurable riches that he is saying. Now, how much does that illustration fall short? I mean, it's just like scratches the surface on what Paul is trying to get at about what you have from God. It's unbelievable. My words are failing me. Why is this so important? Here's why it is. I know the illustration is corny, but I want to ask you this. Christian, not non-Christian, Christian, what keeps you from living out your faith and calling? What's keeping you from doing it? 
Do you know what you have at your disposal? You have the power of God, the same power that Christ raised from, the, from, raised from the dead, you have. You, you are His, you are the object of His affection. He loves you dearly. So how do you begin to work all this into your life? Here's how, listen. You're going to go to a party one night, and I'm assuming you're not 21, and somebody is going to say to you, you want a drink? And at that moment, you're going to hear my voice from this sermon come to your brain. And this is what I want you to begin to think through. In that moment, you're faced with a choice. Here's what the choice is. The choice is, I know I probably shouldn't do that because God says I should follow the laws of the land. And I'm not 21, so I shouldn't consume it. I shouldn't take an alcoholic beverage. Yes, if you lived in Mexico and you're 18, you can do it. But you live in the United States, okay? Now here's what he's saying. In that moment, what matters most to you is probably some sort of form of peer pressure or acceptance. And in that moment, you have to do this. You have to get it in your brain that God Himself accepts you. And that God's acceptance of you must matter more to you than your roommates or your fraternity brothers or your sorority sisters or the people on the swimming team or whoever else it is. My point is is this. Why would you let the acceptance of some 20-year-old boy or girl have more weight in your life than the acceptance of the king of the universe? I mean, riddle me this. I don't get it. But here's the thing. I was just like that in college. Like, I'm not any better than y'all because I was doing the exact same thing. And my point is, is that the opinions of hot college girls and cool college dudes mattered way more to me than what Jesus thought of me. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just trying to tell you, don't make the same mistakes that I made. And here's why. Because God loves you. Because He delights in you. Because He loves you way more than I love my little girls. And I'd do anything to save them. And God's done anything and everything He can to love you. That's what you have. And that's what Paul wants you to know. That's not all. He wants you to know who you are. Paul wants you to know who you are. And look with me at the last part of our passage. He says this, And he put all things under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, gave him as head over all things. And literally the Greek says here, for the church, or to the church, or unto the church, or toward the church is the actual preposition. Here's what he's saying. That you, if you're a Christian, you are the church. You're part of the people of God known as the church. And do you know what the church is also known as throughout the Scriptures? The bride. The bride of of Jesus. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we see an image. John does. I didn't see it. John sees it of a bride being made perfect and coming down the aisle to meet her husband. Who is the husband? Jesus. Do you know who the bride is? It's the church. It's the corporate church. 
And that's what you are. So let me put it like this. He wants you to know that you are the beloved bride of Jesus. That's who you are. That's who you are. Let me say it again. That is who you are. Jesus is caught up in a love affair with His bride, of which you're a part of. And that's meant to just melt you. To know that you have the the lover's gaze of the King of the universe. That that is how much He loves you. He loves you as a husband loves a spouse in small scale, blown up a billion times. And that's what you are. Listen to what one hymn writer wrote. We sing this song, you know. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her. And for her life He died. You're the bride of Christ. Secondly, your purpose, which fits in to who you are. Your calling is to bless the world. In chapter 3, we're going to spend a lot more time there, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it tonight. Paul says that it is through the church that the world is blessed. That the only way, the only hope for the world is Jesus' church. That that is the agent of redemption on the face of the planet. That's it. It's not any government. It's not any sports team. It's not any multi-billionaire. It is the corporate people of God that is sent out to change the face of the earth. Paul's letter is going to say that when husbands love their wives, that it's the church doing their thing and the world looks on and they're blessed. And when employers treat their employees, a slave master treating his slave as a brother, as a brother in the Lord, that the world looks on and is changed. That when parents are seen loving their children and children respecting their parents, and the world looks on, that the world looks on and goes, who is their God? And the world has changed. It's changed in various ways and in sundry ways. But the point is that it's the church that does it. It's the seemingly small and immeasurable things that seem to change the face of the world. That's what Paul's going to say. In the year 440 A.D., a man stood in the Roman Colosseum. I'm stealing this illustration from an ex-professor of mine. And he shouts out, for Christ's sake, stop. And the 50,000 voices don't hear him, so he screams louder. For Christ's sake, stop. As he stands between two gladiators with swords drawn. For Christ's sake, stop. And lo and behold, they listen. The stadium falls silent for a moment. And then the stones come. 
They strike the monk on the head. He falls to the ground. More stones come. More stones come. More stones come. And the man is pummeled to death by stones. A seemingly small thing that seems absolutely inconsequential. Except that what happened in the stadium that day plagued the conscience of the emperor of Rome. And three days later, he shut down forever gladiatorial combat games because of Christ's sake. That day, as one historian put it, Caesar and Christ met in the gladiatorial arena and Christ won. I'm telling you, that's what happens when the church goes out and is the church in the world and nothing less. And nothing less. I want to close. Oh, sorry. I want to ask you one more thing. What is your present posture to the church? I'll just ask you. Do you have a church here? If not, it's okay. But I just want to encourage you to get plugged in. There are so many great churches around Fort Worth and around this campus. And I know students that are involved here that go to several different churches. And they would love to take you and have you be involved. I'm saying this. Ready? Hear me on this. You cannot... Paul is saying in essence here that you cannot say that you're a Christian and hate the church. It's a misnomer. Christians who hate the church don't exist. Does that make sense? Derek Webb put it like this in his song, if you love me, you'll love the church. I just encourage you to consider that. I just encourage you to consider that because it's the church that's going to change the world. It was 1977 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And a young mother, Silvia Quintela, was pregnant with child and waiting for their next train. However, several corrupt army officials would prevent her from getting on that train for they grabbed her and took her to one of the government's most notorious torture centers instead. She would later give birth to a little boy and one of the prisoner guards, Victor Alejandro Gallo, would take the boy home and never tell him that he was adopted. The mother, Sylvia, was never seen or heard from again. Victor and his wife, the prison guard, and his wife, Inez Susanna Colombo, would name the child Alejandro Ramiro Gallo, his identity derived from his adopted father's name. Years later, that Gallo family would fall apart due to Victor's violent nature and criminal exploits. And the boy, Alejandro, would spend most of his life over in Europe as a drifter and a vagabond until February the 3rd, 2010. Alejandro and his adopted mother went and met up with a group that did DNA matching for, for children during those years of the late 70s and early 80s who were kidnapped so they could find their parents. Twenty days later, Alejandro walked through a set of doors and his life was utterly changed. 
there sat a man named Abel Madariaga. Lots of Spanish names. A gray-haired, normal-looking man who happened to be married to a young woman in 1977 who was taken away by Argentine security forces after 33 long years. Father and son were reunited. And Alejandro found out that his name, that name that his mother and his father agreed upon, was really Francisco Madariaga. The 33-year-old son was beaming. The only thing that took his smile away was when someone called him by his old name, Alejandro. His reply, never again. Never again will I use that name. To have your identity is the most beautiful thing that there is. He is saying to actually be who you are is the best thing that any man or woman can have. And I want you to know that that is exactly what Paul is trying to get across. He's trying to remind you and remind me of who we are. And before we can be who we are, we must know who we are. And that is what he wants you to know, what you have and who you are in Him. It's true. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let's pray. God, thank You that this is true about us. That it's more true than the air that we breathe right now. That You love us. That You call us sons and daughters. Remind us of our identity, O oh Lord. Remind us of what we have so that we can live for You, so that we can honor You. Remind us of these things so that we may bless the world that You've put us in. We ask this for Your name's sake. Amen. We're going to sing one more song. Would you stand with us, please?